Welcome. All right, I am turned on, I think. All right. It is uh, so good to see all of you. Tammy, I, I love that, uh, just what you shared. You know, we're, we're starting the celebration of the Advent, which is the coming of Jesus, and we are so excited about that. This morning, we're going to be looking into the book of Genesis, and then First Corinth, or, uh, Romans chapter 8, and then 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to look at those three places, and we're going to see the significance of the promise of the coming of Jesus. You know, um, our hope, it, it is not wishful thinking. We don't just hope. We're not just wishing. It is an optimism that results from trusting the character of God who never lies. And uh, God's been telling us, he's been making promises, and he's been keeping them for since the beginning of time. And so we have a hope that is based on the character of Jesus. As I think about just the importance of the coming of Jesus in this season and our celebration of it, thinking about the coming of Jesus changes everything in our life. And we're going to be looking at Genesis because did you know that Genesis explains everything that is happening in the world? Um, Genesis explains the fallen world that we live in. It explains what happened, why things are the way they are. And in the book of Genesis, right at the very beginning, God promises to send a Savior. And if you don't understand what the Bible says in Genesis 3, you don't know why it is so important that we have a Savior. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say, you know, when I look around at the world and I see all the evil in the world, I just, I can't believe in God. I cannot believe in a God that would allow these things to happen. That is a person who's actually never read the beginning of the Bible. Because when you read the beginning of the Bible, what you realize is every time you see sin, every, every time you, you hear of a, a natural disaster, every time you see anything wrong, any time you see brokenness in yourself or someone else, it doesn't make it hard to believe in God. It emphasizes how much we need God. And so when we see sin in the world, it doesn't make it hard to believe in God. It, it makes believing in God a necessity. And so we're going to be seeing that this morning in some ways. You know, this Christmas season, we need to make sure that we don't miss the joys and the purpose of this Christmas season because of some of the challenges and difficulties that we're facing. We're going to find out that a relationship with Christ provides a foundation for us in all of these things. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to Genesis chapter 3. And what we're going to see this morning is that hope is needed. When you think about the world, when you think about things that are going on, people that you know, uh, one of the things with COVID-19 and, and just even just recently in this last week, I've heard of multiple families that have been touched by suicide, people without hope, people feeling devastated, people facing so much hopelessness that they choose to end their life. There are people, I, I've seen videos of people just crying about the things that are happening economically in their life, just feeling like they're devastated. They feel like they have no hope, and they're so frustrated. They're frustrated with things that are happening politically, and, and that's one of the things that I think about is that if we trust politics, if we trust economics, if we put our faith in the wrong things, we are going to be devastated. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 3. And I want to start by just looking at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to read that verse. I'm going to make a few op, uh, observations about it. And then we're going to go back and look at the context so that we can see the power and the importance of this verse. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that is uh, probably a familiar verse to you. And I don't know if you have the context of who's talking and who's saying what. We'll get that soon. But what I want you to know is that this verse is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It is the very first promise that a Savior is going to come, that salvation is going to be provided. And that happens in the book of Genesis. Now, when you look at this verse, it's talking, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You is who? Anybody know? It's Satan. That's right. You is Satan. And who is the woman? It's Eve. Between your offspring um, and her offspring, the your offspring that is Satan, that is demonic forces, that is everybody, like in John um, chapter uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, where Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, your offspring is the kingdom of Satan. There's going to be this battle, you know, in, 1 Corinthians, or in uh, um, Ephesians chapter 6, where it says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle, and that spiritual battle touches every part of life. It's why there's sickness. It's why there's disease. It's why there are natural disasters. And so we are in this spiritual battle that touches everything we see and everything that we face. And between her offspring, uh, who's her offspring? Okay. Um, some people think it's Mary. Who, who's her offspring? It's Jesus. Her offspring. It is Jesus the Messiah who is going to come. And then it talking about um, uh, her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Jesus will give Satan a fatal blow. We have victory in Christ. He will bruise his heel. And so Jesus is going to suffer. That's all the suffering, all the difficulty. Jesus' death on the cross. He was physically injured. But he was, he was not dealt a fatal blow. Jesus rose from the dead. And so let's, let's now look at the book of Genesis. And I want to start by just reading Genesis 1.1. Now, I don't know if you know this. Genesis 1.1, Jesus is in the first book of the Bible, the very first verse. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you know that Jesus was the one who created the heavens and the earth? Let me show you this verse, Colossians 1.16. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The very first verse is talking about Jesus. And one of the things that we see in Genesis 3.31 is that when God created the world, he created it perfect. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
everything God created was perfect. God created this perfect creation. He, he created perfect people. They had no sin struggles. Jesus walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and had a conversation with them. They talked. They had perfect fellowship. God gave Adam purpose, and he gave him this perfect human relationship. Like if you were to just say, what is the perfect place to be? It was the Garden of Eden. And God created the world and people perfectly. And then this is one of the things that I love about that, is he only gave them one command. Uh, When you think about all the commands and all the rules that there are in life and where, where you go different places, it can be hard to keep track of things. God put one tree in the middle of the garden and he just said, hey, everything is here for you to enjoy. Everything is perfect. No sickness, no difficulty, no trials, no worry. Everything is wonderful. You have one job. Don't eat from the tree, from the fruit of this tree. One instruction. And then what we, what we find out, we find that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Let me show that to you. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely treat, eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When you think about evil in the world, that is where it comes from. God promised Adam, the day that you eat from the tree, everything is going to die. You are going to die. And that had significant ramifications in all of creation So it was destroyed in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, uh, scroll to Genesis chapter 3. They have one command, and in verse 1 through 7, Satan convinces Eve to eat from the tree. He just convinces her, no, you will be better off if you disregard what God says and if you do, uh, if you disobey him. And Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And we are going to see what resulted from that. And all of us see it. We see it all around us. There are many people who don't understand evil in the world. This is where it all comes from. God promised, if you disobey me, you're going, you're going to die. And so that's what happens. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord. First, we're going to see here that they have a broken relationship with God. They died spiritually. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man saw his wife, and, they, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, and he said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? That's the first thing that happened is Adam died spiritually. He was separated from God. That fellowship was broken. And our world and every single person is born with a broken relationship with God. Look at verse 12. And we're going to see the continuation of of what sin did, the the different areas that it it affected. Verse 12, the man said, so so God asked Adam, did you sin? And immediately what happens? God's created this perfect 
relationship for Adam. This person that is just so beautiful, he just looks at Eve and he's just like, oh man, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I am not alone. I was looking all over creation. I saw all the animals and God, you gave me this perfect gift, this person created with the purpose of being his helper, perfect fellowship, a perfect marriage. And immediately when he sinned, this incredible blessing that God gave. Look what happens in verse 12. Adam does this. Adam says, the man said, the woman that you gave to be with me. Who does Adam initially blame? He's going to blame everybody except himself, right? God, you're the one who did it. You gave this woman to me. So he blames God. Uh, God, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This perfect supportive relationship, immediately Adam is saying, it's her fault. God, it's your fault because you gave her to me and she created this. I was watching this joke video on TV and there was this boyfriend and girlfriend and they had like pranked them. And so there's this boyfriend and this girlfriend and they're in this place and they're pretending that there's a, that there's a killer there that's going to kill them. And they got this on TV, and, and the, uh, the boyfriend says to this killer, um, take her and let me go. I was just thinking, okay, that is the end of that relationship. Um, and then, it, you know, it's like I would have loved to see the end of that show when, when the truth of all that came out. But Adam just does that, and that kind of thing has been happening from the day that Adam ate. He blames God, and he blames, blames Eve. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So who, what does Eve do? She blames the snake. So Adam blames God. Eve, Eve blames the, uh, the snake. And relationships have forever been impacted by sin. You think about that. Every time you have a conflict, every time you have a difficulty with anybody, it goes back to the fact that we are sinful people, that our relationships have been damaged, they've been harmed because of sin. Now think about this, the way that this works out, it doesn't just affect Adam and Eve. Uh, The Bible tells us in Romans that every single one of us has inherited sin. And so God's going to make this promise in Genesis 3.15 Eve is going to get pregnant, and as she's giving birth to Cain, she thinks that Cain is this promised one that's going to end up being the Savior. But what we find out later is that Cain does what? He ends up killing Abel. Can you imagine the pain and the sorrow, the ramifications, the broken relationships, not just between Adam and Eve, but when they see the results of their sin in their own family, their kids... One of their sons kills their other son. And it's just a few chapters later in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. This is the reason that the flood came. But one of the things that God says is that in Genesis chapter 6, the reason he sends the flood is because every thought and every intention of of men's hearts were evil continually. You know, a lot of times we look around at the world, we see sinfulness in our world. Did you know that now is not the worst that it's ever been? In Genesis chapter 6, other than Noah and his family, every single person was violent 
and they were constantly, continually evil, every thought. So Adam and Eve sin had a significant impact on relationships and on people. Why do we have struggles? Well, God said, if you disobey me, you will have struggles. And that is exactly what's happened. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed. You are above all, cursed are you above all the livestock, all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then we get to, to Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God immediately promises to send a Savior. Did you know that the entire Old Testament is built on this expectation of a Savior, a coming Savior? Many people think that, that, that Jesus arrived in the New Testament. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. In Job chapter 19, verse 25, quite possibly the first or second book written in the Bible, Job says this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand on the earth. Job, at the very beginning, is looking forward to this Messiah, this Redeemer that is going to come. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. Do you remember when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39, and he says, you search the Scriptures. He was talking about the Old Testament. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. Jesus says the whole Old Testament is about me. We see it in Genesis 1.1. That's Jesus creating. We see it in Genesis 3.15 where God promises, I am going to send a Savior. A Savior is going to be born that is going to save the world from their sin. And did you know that it's not just those promises, but Jesus was active throughout the Old Testament. Did you know that it's Jesus that showed up with two angels to talk to, to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah? The angel of the Lord, when that is happening, Jesus personally shows up and talks to Abraham. That's Genesis 18. In Genesis 32, Jesus is the one who wrestles with Jacob. In Exodus chapter 3, did you know that it is Jesus that speaks to Moses from the burning bush? In Exodus 17, Numbers 20, and 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 10, chapter 10, verse 3, it talks about the fact that when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and they needed water, the water that, the rock that gave them water was Christ who followed them. In Joshua chapter 5, Jesus appears to Joshua before the battle of Jericho. And Jesus speaks to Samson's parents when, they, when, when they're told about him. You know, all those references in the Old Testament to God doing that, when you read those passages, it's clear that that is Jesus. And he's called the angel of the Lord. And so Jesus is all through the Old Testament. One of the other things that we see, so there's this promise of a Savior. It's not just... Uh, the relationship with God that is broken. It is not just Adam's relationship with his wife or people's relationship with each other. We find out that actually all of creation fell. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. So the thorns and thistles, the cursed ground, that is the earth, the world that we live in. Every earthquake is because of Adam's sin. When there are these fires that just burn and devastate things, that is because Adam and Eve, sickness and disease, the reason that COVID-19 spreads and that that's one of the things we deal with is because of Adam's sin. And not just that, but physical death comes because of Adam. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam, physical death. Every time we see physical death and every time anybody dies, it is a testimony that Adam sinned and that we are in need of a Savior. When we look around at the world and we see sin and we see suffering and we see devastation, that doesn't make it hard to believe in God. That is exactly what God promised would happen when Adam and Eve disobeyed. And it is a reminder that we need Jesus. You know, um, a lot of times we think about, um, when we think about the world and we think about life, it is so critical for us to understand the need for a savior. It's the natural disasters, the harsh realities. Um, why do people get sick? All of those, those things. Other people, when, when we look around and we just see these incredibly evil people like Hitler, where did they come from? That is a result of the fall. But it's not just people outside, it's what about us? Why are we selfish? Why are we lazy? Why are we um, dishonest? Why, why do we struggle with the sin issues we struggle with? It's because we have inherited sin from Adam. You know, there's a lot of people who, when they think about these things, they come up with all kinds of different solutions. Have you ever heard anybody talk about the difficulties, the crime, um, just, just uh, all kinds of things that happen, drug abuse, abuse of all different kinds, and even in relationships of families where people are supposed to be caring for each other, there's abuse. And when you look at society's problems, where do people go? They say, we need a better education. They say, we need a more economic advantage. Th these problems occur because this person was born in poverty and this person was born in wealth and we just need to redistribute wealth and, and we need to fix the educational system and, and we need to give people more opportunities. And, and the solutions that people come up with for the problems that we have in our world are completely empty because they don't understand where these problems came from. Have you ever thought about education? How many very educated people murder other people? How many educated people end up in prison? Um, do, do really well-educated people not have problems with sin, devastating problems? Are there really educated people that are so hopeless that they commit suicide? What about wealth? Uh, does wealth remove problems? If we could just make everybody rich and give everybody all the things that they want, would that solve problems? Uh, can you look at any segment of rich, financially well-off society and say, okay, that's where the problems are absent. 
or opportunity? Can you find people that have great opportunity and just say, oh, okay, there's all kinds of sin and struggle and problems, but there's no problems with education. Okay, we know that's wrong. There's no problems with people that are rich. Okay, no, we know that's wrong. There's no problems with people who have opportunity. No, there is a cause of the problem is the sin of Adam and Eve. And the solution, there is one solution to our culture's problems, all of them. And it is a personal relationship with Jesus. God promised that hope would be born, and that is the only hope for our culture, our society, the only hope for us. Look at uh, the second thing I want to point out this morning is that hope is real only in Jesus. God promised that the Savior would be born. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 28. Here's the amazing thing. This theme that starts in Genesis 3.15, Genesis chapter 3, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is going to theologically explain, okay, so how does that impact what we believe and know about Jesus, and what does that say about our hope in Christ? We're going to see that in this passage. This is what the Apostle Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and you're going to see this connection between Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is preaching the theological ramifications of Genesis chapter 3. That's what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the joy, the glory that is to be revealed in us. Look at verse 19. He says, for creation waits eagerly, longing, for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says that creation, the world, is eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. That's the the revealing of the sons of God when Jesus returns. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So this is just saying that, Paul is just saying here that God judged creation because of Adam's sin in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When when you think about creation longing to be restored, when we look around at things in this world that are not as they should be, they need to be restored, and we just see that. Every time we see difficulty in the world, it reminds us that everyone and everything needs Christ. Uh, Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation (coughs) has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, and not only the creation. So this is the amazing thing. Have you ever thought about that? How can creation, how can a mountain, how can a river, how can a rock long for the return of Christ. It's an inanimate object. And Paul is just saying this thing that it makes no sense. All of creation, how can that be that that the world that we live in, that our universe, the material world, is longing for the return of Christ to be restored? That that is like a mind-boggler. But Paul says all of creation is longing for Christ. And then he makes this connection to you. See, a rock doesn't have mind, will, and emotions. But you have mind, will, and emotions. 
A rock did not have a relationship with Christ. It was not made in the image of God in the same way that you and I were made in the image of God. If a rock is longing for the return of Christ, if a mountain is longing for the return of Christ, how much more should that occupy you and me who were made to have a relationship with Christ? It says, and not only, verse 23, the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So you and I, the moment that we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit, that is a down payment. That, that is the first fruits of something that will be completed now, Paul says, he talks about this in Romans 7, 24, when he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul knows the Lord. He has the Holy Spirit, but he's still in this period of struggle. Now look at verse 24. This creates incredible hope. It says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so Paul is just saying here, all of creation, the struggle, all these things that we see, we have the first fruits of the, of the Holy Spirit in our life, but every difficulty, every challenge we have constantly points us to Christ. Have you thought about that? The difficulties, the trials, the struggles in life. If we could, wouldn't we just hit the delete button on those things? No financial struggles, no sickness, no family conflicts, no bad relationships, no marriage struggles. If we could just push the button and remove those things, we would want to do that. But one of the blessings of living in this fallen world is that all those difficulties, all those struggles remind us that this is not the end. This is not what we hope for. This is not what we long for. We live for heaven. And it's an amazing thing that every time something goes wrong in your life, when you're a believer, when you read Genesis chapter 3, when you read the New Testament, as you understand the Bible, everything that goes wrong in your life improves your desire, your longing for Christ, your recognition that my hope and my satisfaction is not in this world. I live for heaven. Can you imagine how God can take every negative thing for a believer? and use that to point them to Christ, to make them live for eternity. You know, this provides hope for the future. Now, there's things we're waiting for, right? Our life has not been fixed. See, there's a lot of people that as they preach the gospel and as they talk to people about a relationship with the Lord, they don't emphasize the fact that yes, God saves us. Yes, God forgives us. Yes, God cares about us, but he doesn't solve every problem that's coming in the future. Because hope that is seen is not hope. We are still hoping for the second coming of Christ. But did you know, as you read on in Romans chapter 8, that there is a hope that impacts us today? Have you thought about what that is? Look what it says here in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Your struggles, your weakness, you have God himself the Holy Spirit living in you that transforms you, that changes you, that helps you. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit knows the mind of the spirit, because the in, the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Have you thought about the fact that God loves you? God cares about you. God is with you at all times, and even every time you pray, the Holy Spirit prays for you. Have you thought about uh, Psalm forty-six? God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. It ends in verse 10. It says, be still and know that I am God. We have a peace and we have a confidence because we have the help of the Holy Spirit. We have God's help in our daily life. Look at verse 28. Everything that you go through in your life, every difficulty you face, is God bringing good into your life. Look at this. Um, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, the, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then Paul is going to root our hope and all of those things in God's sovereign salvation. Did you know that your salvation is not hanging in the balance? I want you to notice the way salvation is described every single step of salvation. How is it described in this passage? Look at the first one. For those whom he foreknew. If you're a Christian, God foreknew you. Do you know when foreknowledge happened? That, that happens before the creation of the world. God looks into the future. He knows you personally. He foreknows you. He says, I know that person. I know the intimate details of their life. I know everything about them. And, and he chooses to love you. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. In advance, God says, I am going to work in this person's life. I'm going to predestine them to come to know me. To, to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Jesus decided that he was going to take your broken sinfulness and transform you to be like Christ. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he called. See, how do you know when you are called? Called is the moment that God worked in your heart, that day that, like the, the foreknowledge, the predestination, that happened in eternity past. And then the day you are called, that was the day that God worked in your heart, the day that spiritually speaking, the lights went on. If you were having a conversation with somebody and they shared the gospel with you and you said, okay, you know, I see my need for Christ. I want to accept Christ. And you came forward. That's the day that you are called. And for those of us who are believers, all of that has happened. And guess what else happened in that moment? For those he called, those whom he called, he also justified. That's that you would be declared righteous. Even though we're still living in the struggling world, because of Jesus, we were declared righteous. And those whom he justified, now all of those things, if you're a Christian, have already happened. But look what it goes on to say. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Is there anything odd about that? We haven't been glorified yet. But you'll notice it doesn't say those whom he justified, he will glorify. See, none of us have been glorified yet. That is given in that same past tense, confident certainty. You have been glorified. 
We don't wander around wondering if we're going to lose our salvation. If God has done any of those things in your life, he will do all of those things in your life. It is a done deal. Our our future is as complete as our past. Your eternity is not hanging in the balance. That hope that we have in Christ. Hey, the world needs hope, right? Hope is found only in Jesus. There is no other solution. There is no political solution. There is no solution for the challenges that our world faces. It is only a relationship with Christ that transforms, that changes. It does not matter what somebody in your life is struggling with. There is nothing you can do to fix them. There is nothing that you can do to ultimately help them other than inviting them into a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is our hope. And uh, what are the ramifications of that? I want to take just a brief moment, and I want to think through how does knowing these things impact us? What is different in your life because you know that the world needs Christ, and you need Christ, and other people need Christ? There is a need for hope because you know that hope is in the person of Jesus. How does that change things? One of the things that we see is that hope definitely makes a difference. And I want to just look at a passage, I'll put it up on the screen, of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to zoom into a moment. So he he knows Genesis 3. He preaches about the spiritual ramifications of that from a theological perspective. And then we take Paul in one of his darkest moments. Do you ever struggle? Do you ever feel like, man, I'm a believer and I know I have hope, but man, sometimes I feel terrible. Sometimes I feel hopeless. Sometimes I'm struggling. Sometimes I worry about things. Sometimes inside I just feel like I'm broken and I, and I see brokenness and I just feel like, well, wait, what's going on? If I'm a Christian, shouldn't I always be happy? Do you ever have moments of discouragement and struggle? And I want to pick one of those moments in Paul's life. And I want to say, how did these truths, how did they impact him? And and what difference do they make for you and me? And so this is what we see, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is Paul's, this is one of the ways it makes a difference in Paul's life. And over this Christmas season, this is how it should make a difference in your life. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, I'll, I'll give you a few verses before the one I put on the screen. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What did Satan do in the garden? He convinced Eve to not see God for who God was. What is Satan still doing in this world? He is blinding people so they won't see Jesus. And what's our response? What's the ramification Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Our response to this hope that we have received is that when we see people, we recognize they need hope. And in every conversation, and our purpose in every relationship is to preach Christ. We realize that whatever problem somebody is facing, Their greatest need is Jesus. 
if a person's homeless and destitute, if somebody's out of work, if people have broken family relationships, if people are in prison, if they're trapped in addiction, if they are living broken, sinless lives, the solution that people have is not, how can I get them to change what they're doing? How can I get them to stop doing this? How can I get them to do that? Let me get them some advice on how to deal with their marriage or this problem or that problem. We recognize that every problem anybody has, the solution is Christ, and we preach Christ. The second thing is that we have a personal hope in Christ that encourages us and makes us optimistic. We're not, we don't always feel optimistic, but if we think correctly about life, if we think correctly about the things that are true, that will overcome us with a sense of optimism. And I want you to see that working out in the Apostle Paul's life in one of his low moments. So hope is, is, is a, this deep, it's deeper than optimism because it's confident. But did you know that the definition of op- optimism is hopefulness and confidence about the future? No matter what happens in a Christian's life, we should be optimistic because we are hopeful and we are confident about the future. Look at... Um, 2 Corinthians, and I'll, I'll read verse 7. The Paul acknowledges the pain and the difficulty and the challenges of life. He doesn't just, he's not just saying, oh yeah, no, everything's easy, I'm always happy, everything's always good, nothing goes wrong. That's not what he says. That's not the confidence that he has. I never feel pain in life. That's not how, what he says. He says this in verse 7, we have this in treasures and jar of, jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not us. Verse eight, look at this. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. Is it possible for a believer, a faithful believer, to go through difficulty, to be afflicted, to get sick, to have tragedies? Yes, but those things are not ultimately devastating. We're afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed. There's things about life we don't understand that are a struggle, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but even in the midst of persecution, we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are never destroyed. Do you see that, that optimism that when everything in life goes wrong, the Apostle Paul is secure, he is confident because he knows where he's headed. He knows who holds life in his hands. And this is the hope that we need to deliver to people around us. This is the hope that we need to focus on and that we need to live. You know, um, every, every day, in every trial, in every person that we see, we need to remind ourselves of the treasure that we have in Christ. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's really the root, that's the place where it all starts, is that Jesus came and he was born with a purpose, and that is to die for the sins of mankind. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and put to death in the flesh, but, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus died so that you and I could be saved, so that we could be made spiritually alive. And that is what we remember. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says this, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Lord, I thank you for the promise of a Savior. That the very first thing that you did in response to sin was to promise a way out, a way of salvation. And Lord, you have kept that promise throughout history. You've given us a confidence to live life that is unshakable. Lord, we know that our standing before you is not based on our works. It's not based on us or anything that we do. It is based on a work that you have God, I just ask that you would help us to be mindful, that we would proclaim and, and dwell on the fact that, Lord, you have changed us and you have saved us, and that work will be completed. And Lord, we thank you for that in your name.